0: Hi, folks. This is Abel James, and thanks so much for listening to The Fat-Burning Man Show, where we talk about real food and real results. Today's show is with the esteemed Gary Taubes, the best-selling author of How We Get Fat and Good Calories, Bad Calories. Now, before we get to the show, I wanted to let you know that if you sign up for my mailing list for a limited time at fatburningman.com, you can grab my whole fat loss system, which is eBooks, audio, as well as video training. For over 60% off at 19.95. So if you'd like to check that out, just head on over to fatburningman.com and sign up for the mailing list and we'll get you rolling right away. A bit more exciting news, I'm teaming up with Dan Goh to write a couple of books on intermittent fasting for women as well as another book on intermittent fasting for men. So stay tuned. Hopefully we'll have that out by summer or fall. It's a super hot topic and it's something that I do pretty much every day. All right, this is a great content-packed show with Gary. Now, in the show, Gary and I cover why pretty much everyone up until 1960 knew exactly what made us fat. We talk about why eating eggs won't give you a heart attack, whether or not there's such things as a safe starch, as well as the one thing that Gary cut out of his diet to lose 15 pounds effortlessly. All right, let's go hang out with Gary. All right, folks, Gary Tobbs is the best selling author of the groundbreaking and controversial books Good Calories, Bad Calories, and Why We Get Fat. Gary's also a dweller of rabbit holes, a hero to all heavy cream lovers like me. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Gary.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So before we get into your approach, let's hear a little bit about your story. I know you studied applied physics at Harvard, aerospace engineering at Stanford, journalism at Columbia. So how and why did you dedicate yourself to tearing down conventional nutritional theory?
1: Okay. Well, with all that science background, I I ended up in journalism because I read All the President's Men. and I wanted to be an investigative reporter, but the only job I could get was in science writing. Okay. The only job I could get that allowed me to stay in New York where my girlfriend was. <laughs> so careers are determined. So uh, I actually ended up, uh, I wrote my first book. I went to uh, live at a physics laboratory in Geneva, CERN, which is this huge physics lab. And I thought I was going to be following a great breakthrough yeah, um, and get to write a book like The Double Helix without having to be a Nobel Prize winner <laughs> okay. myself. And instead I ended up watching these physicists screw up while I was there. They discovered non-existent elementary particles. I ended up writing an expose. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly I was doing kind of investigative science journalism and I became obsessed with how hard it is to do science right and how easy it is to get the wrong answer and for the next uh, five years or so, I, mean, I wrote about various uh, uh, examples of, of bad science and in, in biology and in nuclear physics. And then in the early 90s, some of my friends in the physics community said, boy, if you're really interested in bad science, you should look at some of this stuff in public health. <laughs> and so with a completely clean slate, I moved into public health, and then lo and behold, the science is really terrible. There was just none of the kind of rigorous, meticulous... Uh, checks and balances necessary that that, that that the hard scientists the physicists believe are absolutely necessary right. to discover reliable knowledge. In public health, you could kind of, you know, do a little bit of this and then maybe, you know, some of that, and then you could go, well, oh, this seems reasonable. We'll believe that for the mm-hmm. rest of our lives. <laughs> um, and then by the late 90s, I stumbled into this... Uh, Controversy over whether the cause Of high blood pressure was the salt We eat
2: mm-hmm.
1: And it turns out that science is terrible um, I spent About nine months working on one article For the journal Science I interviewed 80 researchers and administrators I printed out You know foot high stacks of papers And had had my own um, You know chose some of the best Researchers I knew to read The, the, the papers and assess them For me and while I was doing this, one of the worst scientists I'd ever interviewed, and I had had the <laughs> opportunity to interview some terrible scientists, Yeah. I mean, people would like, you wouldn't want them fixing the plumbing in your house, let alone. <laughs> I've but met anyway, people like that. Worst, yeah, one of the worst scientists I ever interviewed took credit, not just for getting Americans to eat less salt, but to eat less fat and less eggs. Sure. And I got, got off the phone with this fellow, and I literally called up my editor at the journal Science, where I was doing these papers, these articles, I said, look, you know, when I'm done with this salt story, I'm going to write a piece about fat and eggs, because like, I don't know what the story is, but one of the worst scientists I've ever interviewed just took credit for getting Americans not to eat these. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what the story is, but if he was involved in any substantive way, I know there's a story there. Yeah. One of the things I had taken away from my first decade reporting on controversial science is that bad scientists never get the right answer. hmm um, it's just science is too difficult Nature is too tricky If they're not good They're going to get missed, you know, They're going to go off down the wrong alley And in this case this fellow took us all with us So I spent a year working on one story For science on the dietary fat The idea that a healthy diet Is a low fat diet mm-hmm. um, And then I went from there To doing this cover story For the New York Times magazine In 2002 What if it's all been a big fat lie That was this kind of uh, e probably, if not easily, the most uh, controversial cover they had run, mm-hmm. you know, right. year before or since, and um, that got me a big book advance, and so now I can really <laughs> research this. I'd always wanted to write a book on on the diet science because I was fascinated by it. Yeah, but I knew that I was kind of a, a anal compulsive researcher that I'm. I i do not work fast um, and. I figured, you know, when I had pitched this science story as a book proposal, I f- would have gotten enough money to spend a year or two writing the book, and I knew it would take longer than that. And mm-hmm. I'd end up in debt, and I was married, and my wife was pregnant, and ending up further in debt wasn't an option. But wow. after this very controversial New York Times Magazine story, I got a big advance, which was enough to pay for four years of my life in Manhattan <laughs> and my family. Awesome. And then Then, of course, I spent five years on the book just to make sure I'd end up in debt anyway. (laughs) Um, But such is life. I mean, it was an amazing story. And once you start, you know, once you start doing the research, it was like,
0: wow. Yeah.
1: I never imagined it was this bad.
0: Yeah. So just for the people out there who don't know, can you give a, a brief synopsis of your approach, the things that you found wrong with conventional wisdom?
1: Um. You know, it's a cliche, but virtually everything. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, again, I started with this idea that salt causes high blood pressure, and now you know there's been campaigns for twenty years to cut back on the salt and, mm-hmm. and processed foods, and okay, so that's just terrible science. I think it's I think it's wrong. I don't believe it's salt that causes high blood pressure. Um, that led me into this idea that a low fat diet is a healthy diet, and there's virtually no uh, meaningful evidence for that. Um, so, you know, it's one of these things that could be true, but it, it more than likely is not. Yeah. That a low fat diet is actually an unhealthy diet, not a healthy one. Um, so then you get into this idea of what, what makes us fat and obesity, and there the the conventional wisdom is that it's just this energy balance problem, right? You take in more calories and you expand, you get fat. Right. So this is so this the idea that it's all about calories and energy is so deeply set that to argue otherwise is to be perceived as a you know what a crazy clack. um <laughs> i certainly believed it was all about calories until i started doing this research
2: yeah
1: and now i think that not only is it wrong i think it's nonsense you know if you think about it for 10 minutes it, it tells you absolutely nothing about the cause of obesity right and so what we should be doing this is what i've kind of devoted my life to now, is that. You know, this idea that obesity is just it's a hormonal regulatory defect. It's like any yeah. growth disorder, okay? So if somebody's 8 feet tall, you don't worry about how much they ate or expend. And you just say, hey, the guy's 8 feet tall. He had a tumorous, the two three line made him minimum oversecrete growth hormone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If someone's 4 feet tall, you don't worry about how much they ate. Like an adult is 4 feet tall. You don't worry about how much they ate or how. You know, once they work out, you say he's the only good adult four feet tall. he's probably got a growth hormone deficiency or growth hormone receptor defect. Right. You know, um, but if somebody's emaciated, you say, Oh, they've got an eating disorder and they don't eat enough and if somebody's obese, you say they have an eating disorder and they eat too much, and these are growth disorders also. They're just growth of the fat tissue in effect mm-hmm. rather than vertical growth. And so, you know, the arguments I'm making in my book, and particularly why we get fat, where I, I take good calories, bad calories, you know, it's kind of historic, takes a historical, uh, very scientific perspective on all this. Cause I want you to see how we came to believe what we believe, right. what was the flaw in, in the, those arguments and in the evidence, and then what the counter-argument is and how we, the counter-argument should have been proposed had we paid attention to the right research. Mm-hmm. Um, why we get fat, I just boil that down to an argument. The first half is, look, here's the problem with thinking about obesity. as an energy balance issue. Calories in, calories out. And then the second half says, now, if you just say, hey, it's a biological issue. Yeah. You know, somebody's got too much fat on their body, so let's look at what regulates fat. Mm-hmm. And then That happens to be the hormone insulin, and the hormone insulin happens to be regulated effectively by the carbohydrate content of our diet. Right. And so if you just take a biological approach, you no hypothesis, by which I mean the hypothesis that would require remarkable evidence to throw out, is that carbohydrates are fattening. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, up in something like the 1820s until the 1960s, the conventional wisdom was that carbohydrates were fattening. Yeah. And one of the li- lines I quote in both my books and I give in my lectures is the first sentence of a 1963 British Journal of Nutrition article written by one of the two leading British dietitians, and it's Every Woman Knows that Carbohydrates Made her Fat. hmm. You know, something like this is a piece of common knowledge that no nutritionist would dispute.
0: And it's lost now, com- completely lost. So your approach isn't, even though it's treated as such now, it's not new or radical, but. Like you said, until the '60s, carb-rich foods like bread, pasta, potatoes, sweets, and beer—they were all known to be fattening. And now, some of those things, like whole grain, whole grains, for example, healthy whole grains, are supposed to make you thin. So, <laughs> yeah.
1: well, this is what we literally, over the course of 20 years, this is a great triumph for our medical research establishment. We took this conventionalism that carbohydrates are fattening. We decided fat causes heart disease, therefore, fat has to cause obesity as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of obese people get heart disease. Yeah. And if you're going to eat a low fat diet, you got to replace the fat with something, and that's going to be carbohydrates. So, carbohydrates went from uniquely fattening to our healthy diet foods. And this happened coincident with an obesity epidemic. Hey, here's a surprise. Yeah. Um, actually, it's funny. You say nothing. But I'm just taking an argument and rephrasing it. One of my favorite lines in why we Get Fed, I'm surprised my editor didn't take this out. <laughs> I'm trying to make it as serious as possible. But I have a line where I say repeating myself on the subject of repetitiousness. Nothing I've said here is new. No. Yeah. And I know I love to get like Amazon reviews where people criticize me we saying, "Well, How doesn't say anything new." I'm only giving two stars. But the truth is, you know, there are all arguments. I mean, I've reshaped some of them. I've linked a few together that should have been linked sure. or would have been linked if different historical events had or had not happened. But, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it should be the conventional wisdom. If you don't want to be fat, don't eat carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And the more purified their form, the easier to digest, the higher the glycemic index, the more sugar, fructose in them, the more you should avoid them. And everything else is fine Yeah. they don't have this effect of shifting the hormonal balance of your body so that it's storing fat rather than burning it.
0: Mm-hmm. And whether or not anything uh, that's been said is, is new or not, and I would refute that. I think your books are full of novel ideas, or at least the way that you string them together, as you said, and certainly backed up by a heck of a lot of research. But you ask anyone out there... Um, you know how much calories matter and most people will say absolutely they matter a heck of a lot i mean you ask most people in nutrition that today and uh, and that's exactly what they would say that you should be counting calories you should be reducing them under eating if you want to lose weight but the idea of eating a can of tuna being somehow equivalent to chugging a can of coke you know it's full of sugar and then being the metabolic consequences of those two things being uh equivalent is absolutely preposterous so it, why does that stick uh, in the minds of most people as being the truth?
1: Well, that's what it's funny, because I had uh, a couple years ago, a well, year and a half ago, a year ago, April, I, um, I had a cover story in the New York Times magazine, uh, Is Sugar Toxic? So mm-hmm. Again, this is one of the implications of this alternative hypothesis, is that sugars meaning sucrose, high fructose corn syrup are kind of uniquely deleterious. So 100 calories of starch or 100 calories of fat or 100 calories of these sugars, and 100 calories of sugars are do bad things to your body that the starch or the fat doesn't do. Mm-hmm. I mean, they might do good things, too, but they certainly do bad things. Right. So one of my old friends in journalism who had written a book about obesity and um, not include any and not done any of the research I did, so came to the conventional conclusions um and has ever since then, ever since my Times magazine article thought that I had just gone crazy um, <laughs> obesity you know, issues. so she wrote a blog but, um imagine where she writes saying that it's just, just it's just crazy this idea that sugar is there's something unique about it that 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 people should worry about it any more than any other calor. And I'm thinking what you said, which is, you know, we know that these things are metabolized differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We know that these things have different effects on hormones and have very powerful effects on our human body. We should expect them to do different things. Right. The idea that they all do the same thing and the thing that matters is the amount that you consume is, you know, naive on like a 16th century level.
2: Yeah.
1: Um... And yet, that is the conventional wisdom. And then you get into all these questions about why is it the conventional wisdom, and um, you know, cognitive dissonance, and group think, and... Um,
0: <laughs> the fun stuff.
1: But it's funny, I, uh, a couple weeks I'm giving a debate, doing a debate, whatever the correct term is, debating someone at Oxford. So I'm debating the head of the International Obesity Task Force. Mm-hmm. So I was invited by the event coordinator for the Oxford Scientific Society, the student event coordinator was a fellow getting his Ph.D. in um, obesity research at Oxford. And they would very taken by my books and my ideas, so he wanted to get me in. And we were discussing who I could debate. So the first person we thought about was someone who had a chair in Energy Balance in, in um, the U.K., but she said she wouldn't debate a journalist because a journalist can't really be trusted to stick <laughs> to the scientific facts. So then I was saying to this fellow, you know, I really worry that we could actually find someone who, who's a researcher who would defend this idea that it's all about calories. Yeah. And nothing else. And this uh, student at Oxford said, well, let me tell you, I was trying to, I was talking to my advisor the other day, and my advisor. I was giving him your arguments about the energy balance being nonsense, and his response was talking to you, it was like talking to a creationist. <laughs> uh, wow! I don't, think we'll, I don't think we'll have trouble getting someone to take you oh, wow. but it is true that people will even these researchers they're the really good ones, they'll get it mm-hmm. and they'll understand it and I've even I've been in rooms with researchers who have been able to phrase my argument better than I can to point out implications that I haven't thought about in 10 years and then kind of immediately collapse back to their belief that it's all about calories and make a statement like if I was going to, you know, how do we get the end the obesity epidemic? We make everybody, you know, run marathons mm-hmm. six times a year or something like that. You know, it's just sort of um, these deep-set beliefs are very hard to shake. Yeah. Um, and – uh You know, it's, it's it's fascinating to study this and to experience it. But then when you think about it, we're going to have to get these people to shake them, to shift their paradigms of the mm-hmm. scientific lingo. And, um, you yeah. know, assuming I'm right, I could be wrong. But assuming <laughs> I'm right, then they've got to shift their paradigms, and, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be yeah. an interesting decade
0: or two. Oh, absolutely. And, and it, you know, calories in, calories out is a beautiful idea. It's, uh, it's one that's very attractive to me. And, you know, I, you know, when I was running marathons, I certainly lost weight and I was watching the, the calories tick off on my fancy watch. Uh, but when I actually measured my body fat, it wasn't fat that I was losing. It was muscle, you know, and, okay. and, and, <laughs> and, that's a, a common thing that happens when you under eat or when you over train. Um, and the, consequences of of doing such things are are predictable and people understand it but like you said they always fall back somehow to the the calories in calories out
1: well it just seems so obvious i mean that's a funny thing i i gave this lecture the lecture that became the book why we get fat is a lecture that i i I still give to the stem and it's evolved over the years sure but it's the point i want to make and so it's it's starts off by debunking the whole energy balance idea and then goes on to replace it with a biological view of obesity. So I gave this lecture at the the Pennington Biomedical Research Center, which is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and it's about the most influential academic obesity research center in the country. And... um, after the lecture, one of the members of the faculty raised his hand, and he said, Mr. is it fair to say that one subtext of your lecture is that you think we are all idiots. <laughs> and it was, a, I mean, it was a great question, because it precisely hit the nail on the head. And I said, you know, of course I don't think you're idiots. I mean, you know, I should be as smart as you guys are, but I do think you embrace this idea that was handed down to you from the generation I came before you, this calories in, calories out, this beautiful idea that seems so obvious. Mm-hmm. And you never thought to question it. Yeah. And you didn't have any guidance. And you live in a world where had you questioned it, it would not have furthered your career. Yeah. <laughs> I could question it because I live outside that world. You know, nobody, um, but even then, you have to be willing to take a lot of heat. Yeah. Um, you know, my favorite story is, When I lecture about this, I explain why we came to believe in the laws of thermodynamics. And I thought about being on the Larry King show and having Jillian Michaels, a trainer from The Biggest Loser, come Mm -hmm. on from LA. I was in the studio in New York and give me a lecture on national television (laughs) on the laws of thermodynamics. Right. And I have a physics degree from Harvard. And I was not—I was not a good student. I was like a B minus student, which is about the lowest you can get. But I—I I get the laws of thermodynamics. Sure, sure. But if you argue that it's not about calories, it's not about energy, people come back at you with like you don't believe the laws of thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. It's like of course I do. You <laughs> know what I'm
0: saying? <laughs> that pesky Jillian Michaels. <laughs> so, I was just uh coming back from Canada yesterday, Gary, and and in the airport I was with a bunch of friends and I had a little cup full of hard-boiled eggs and I was just, you know, there were like four of them. I was hungry. I I didn't eat breakfast that day. And uh and some of my friends they're they're looking at me just like kind of google at all crazy cuz I'm supposed to be, you know, like the fit guy, right? The, the guy who's all into health and I'm I'm just downing these eggs and they're just like, "What? You're you're eating the yolk? Aren't you worried about getting you know, heart disease, having a huge heart attack or a stroke or whatever? Aren't you worried about your arteries? <laughs> so if you were in that situation, what would you say to them?
1: Um, well, I would say, yeah, I, actually, I would probably be doing the same thing you do. <laughs> yeah. now that I travel, yeah, you know, the hard-boiled eggs are one of the few things you can usually eat
0: I know. on the road. You yeah. can
1: find dependable. And I think it's a major step forward that they're out there now. Mm-hmm. Continue, so they
0: That's a good point. And
1: the funny thing was, in the early 90s, uh, I'd say throughout the 90s, I probably boiled 10,000 eggs and threw out 10,000 <laughs> yolks.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: you know, because that's what we did. You know, right. it's all about it. And that's one of the reasons why the medical research community thinks this is all quackery. Because they'd say, look, we did. We watched you throw out 10,000 egg yolks mm-hmm. in the 90s, and now you're, we're supposed to take you seriously when you say, you know, I'm going to eat 10,000 eggs, but I'm eating the yolks. You mm-hmm. know, you're obviously a food Um, You know, the idea that, the egg yolks cause heart disease or make you fat. So the the make you fat was an interesting thermodynamic, oddly enough, thermodynamic argument from the 80s by a guy named J.P. Flat at the UMass, University of Massachusetts, mm-hmm. said that had this theory that pointed out that that your body um, makes fat out of fat much more efficiently than it does carbohydrates. So the idea was that if a food doesn't have fat in it, it could can't make you fat. Your body isn't going to store it as fat. Mm-hmm. So we all eat these very low-fat diets. But also this idea that the saturated fat and the cholesterol in the um in the egg is going to cause heart disease. So we should avoid it for that reason as well. And the, the joke is, so J.P. flatt's theory was interesting, but just wrong, like many theories <laughs> are. Yeah. <laughs> And even JP would have said, oh yeah, I, I leave out all endocrinology, all hormones, because I'm not actually talking about those, and those would regulate accumulation. Mm-hmm. Um So what's interesting there, by the way, is you actually do store the fat you consume. So your body takes the fat in your and it puts it in your fat tissue. So that made people think, well, with it, we are in the fat we eat, right? And the more fat I eat, the more fat I'm going to store.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's the carbohydrates that actually regulate what your body does with the fat once it gets in your fat tissue. Right. So if you eat a lot of carbs, you raise insulin levels, and it's going to keep that fat in there even if you need it for mm-hmm. fuel.
2: Mm-hmm. If you eat
1: very few carbs, and you don't raise your insulin levels, then you can eat a lot of fat, and it'll put the fat in your fat tissue, but then it'll let it come right out and burn it for fuel. So you you do store the fat eat, but it's the carbohydrates that determine what your body does with it. Yeah. And so, if you don't want to have it accumulate to excess amounts of fat, you keep the carbs low, not the fat low, which is kind of bizarre. Mm-hmm. Then the heart mm-hmm. disease stuff, the end of saturated fat is going to raise cholesterol. This was the first theory back in the 60s. Right. Then they got a lot more sophisticated. They said, well, it's going to raise LDL cholesterol. And LDL cholesterol is a kind of a, a marker for heart disease. So, if you've got high LDL, you're at higher risk. Mm-hmm. And if you have low LDL Mm -hmm. but it's a pretty lousy market There's a lot Um, So we locked that idea In the late 1970s And by the early 1984 There was an NIH convention Consensus conference Where they said look We should all eat Low fat diets the idea being if you eat low-fat diets, you would be eating a low-saturated-fat diet, which will then lower LDL cholesterol, and you'll live longer. And this was just a guess. This was a, There were a few ideas that were linked together, and so mm-hmm. it was sort of um, maybe if we just – they might all be true separately, and if they're all true together, maybe this will have an effect, and we got to act, and we don't have time <laughs> to do the really compelling studies, so we're going to take a leap of faith and tell the whole nation to do this, and that's what they did.
0: Sure. Great science. What
1: happened? Yeah, great science. <laughs> this is exactly what you want your public health authorities doing, is just kind of guessing that this is a good idea and then getting the whole nation to do it. And they literally launched a public relations campaign. And they talked about it as a public relations campaign to get the whole country to go on a low-fat diet, um, all of which, like I said, means you're eating more carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Sugar got a free pass in all this, uh, among other things. It didn't have fat in it. So even the American Heart Association by the 90s. Is putting out pamphlets that say if you want to avoid heart disease, eat low-fat snacks, and you can do that by replacing the fatty snacks you eat with things like sugar and hard candies.
0: It's <laughs> so crazy. It's
1: crazy. So, and the, the problem is, as science progresses, so first of all, people do some experimental trials, which is how you what you have to do if you really want to discover whether what you think you know is indeed true. Mm-hmm. And the experimental trials completely contradict what you would expect from this idea that dietary fat is bad for you. So, like, they put do diet trials and they take obese subjects, and half of them are randomized to an Atkinsite like diet, which is a very high-fat, high-saturated fat diet. Mm-hmm. You can eat as much as you want. the other half can, you know, like, an American Heart Association step One diet, which is, you know, like lean chicken breast and, and, and you know, rice and lettuce. Yeah. And... Calorie restricted. And that not only are you getting these low fat foods, but you can't eat as much as you want. You've got to restrict it to like 1,500 calories a day, which mm-hmm. is known to drive people crazy with starvation, but that's what the advice is. So <laughs> they do these studies, and lo and behold, not only are the people on the Atkins-like diets, these very low carbohydrate, high fat diets, lose significantly more weight, even though they can eat as much as they want, their heart disease risk profiles get better. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then they do a uh, study called the Women's Health Initiative. So it's 49,000 women are randomized. 20,000 are put on a low-fat diet, so lots of fruits and vegetables and all grains, and they're told to avoid, you know, not, not just fatty meats but all meats. They kind of saw it. The investigators kind of saw it. It's thrown in the kitchen sink at, at breast cancer and heart disease. And then the other 29,000 get to eat whatever they want, go about their lives, and they run this out for seven years, and lo and behold, the low-fat diet is absolutely nothing for these women. Jeez. Their heart disease, diabetes, cancer, they don't lose weight, no, yeah. no difference. But they, the are they are miserable. They are miserable, and they should have seen a difference. Even if there was no effect from eating less fat, the study was stacked in such a way that they should have seen an effect. Yeah. From the fact that they told these women to change their lives and they didn't say that to the other 29,000, they counsel them. And so there's a very well-known effect in these scientific trials called a performance um, confounder. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the reason when you do, a double, if you do a drug study, you do a double-blind, right? Because you don't want even the doctors to know what drug the patient's on because a doctor might subtly do something different yeah. to the patients on the drug to the patients that aren't. Because it's very well known that if it's not double-blind, you'll get a, a bogus effect sure. that you'll attribute to the drug, which is actually all this subconscious stuff the doctor is doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but in these diet trials, they don't care about that. That's what I mean about they just do anything they want. It's not <laughs> <something that's> terrible. <laughs> anyway. So they do all these trials, no benefit to a low-fat diet. There seems to be a lot of benefit to a high-fat diet when compared to a low-fat diet. And then simultaneously, the study of risk factors for heart disease is improving. All the way back to your eggs, I digressed a lot.
0: <laughs> no, it's all good stuff.
1: Yeah. The, um, so in the 1970s, it was, you know, LDL cholesterol is bad, and HDL cholesterol is good, and triglycerides are kind of bad. But then there's, a lot of research, science progresses, new technologies are invented. Um, very smart people are involved, and so that's 2013. And we know that the biggest risk factor for heart disease is, is either the size and density of the LDL particles, it's not the cholesterol, it's the particle that carries the cholesterol around in the body. And if those particles are small and dense, then they're atherogenic. They tend to create a heart disease, and if they're large and fluffy, they're not. Mm -hmm. So it's either this, this small, dense LDL or the number of LDL particles. And there are different people who think different things based on their statistical analyses. But either way, what determines either how many LDL particles you have or whether they're large and fluffy or small and dense is the carbohydrate content of the diet. So the same carbohydrates that would make you fat because they stimulate insulin secretion are the same carbohydrates that would actually Cause the LDL particles to become atherogenic, to mm-hmm. create atherosclerosis. Right. Yeah, much the same mechanisms, the, the way the carbohydrates are metabolized in the liver and the effect of insulin. And so, either way, the egg yolks turn out to be something you should be eating, <laughs> either because you want to be lean or you don't want to get heart disease. And mm-hmm. I could argue you don't want to get cancer and you don't, you know. Sure. Uh, and the thing you shouldn't be eating is the toast and the orange juice and the, you know, dried cereal with skim milk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all the stuff we've been taught to eat over the past, you know, 30, 40 years, because it's supposed to be so good for us.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's, it's painful to think of what I was raised thinking, not, not according to what my parents said, just what, in terms of what conventional wisdom told me. Uh, and every time I went into my doctor, they would tell me, you know, eat less cholesterol, less fat, less red meat. And I was eating no red meat for a long time, no meat at all. I was a vegetarian. And every time I came into the doctor, I was fatter and sicker. And they said, well, you need to do more of this. <laughs> and, Clearly, you know,
1: and we have drugs for you now.
0: And, oh yeah. And every time and, I went in,
1: let's the- give you our, you know, the statins for your heart and our mm-hmm. blood pressure, lowering pills for your blood pressure and, um, you know, if you got gout, we can fix that too.
0: <laughs> and it's um, it's so bizarre.
1: It is very bizarre. I mean, it's it's sort of yeah. It's it's an interesting problem. And and you know these these diseases we're talking about—obesity, type two diabetes. Okay, so there are epidemics going on now. We know that um, there's uh, the, the the burden on our healthcare system is enormous. So there's yeah. all this discussion and controversy and argument about health care reform but if we could bring just you know obesity rates back to what they were in the early 1960s we wouldn't need to reform our health care sure so we'd save so much money we'd save like a hundred and you know 30 billion dollars a year
0: <laughs> jump change just
1: by getting obesity rates under control and you throw in type 2 diabetes with it and you'll double that number and again i'm kind of making these numbers up the burden of obesity at the moment is estimated 150 billion dollars a year on our health care system that is wild so you know there's massive reason to do something about it and and you know the community treats it like well we just we know the truth mm-hmm. we know what causes this problem Well they'll simultaneously we know what causes this problem is take in more calories than we expend but we also know that it's complex and multifactorial, Yeah, which explains why nothing we've done in the past 50 years has led to one person losing weight. Actually, that's not true. It's like seven people have lost weight. <laughs> on, um, I actually, we did an analysis recently. So in 1956, the year I was born, about 195 papers were published on the subject of obesity in the research literature. hmm and last year, there are almost 16,000. Wow. And obesity rates have gone up almost threefold. In coincidence with these 16,000. In fact, you know another way to look at it I was I've had a debate uh, in the literature with a, in the blogosphere with a, a young neuroscientist, very smart guy at the University of Washington, and he thinks I'm full of nonsense. <laughs> And one thing he doesn't like is I leave out the hormone leptin. Yeah. On this book, and he recently in my books, and he recently pointed out that there are over 10,000 papers published on leptin. Mm-hmm. And it's these 10,000 papers. It's what we know about leptin that's led to those seven people I mentioned losing weight, who are the seven people who <laughs> were leptin have leptin receptor defects. I think okay. It was, or leptin so that you can replace leptin and they will no longer be obese. Right. It's a very tiny number. I may be exaggerating with the seven.
0: Yeah, um, but that's not but what's going the, on.
1: Yeah, but 10,000 papers, Geez, you'd like to have some evidence mm-hmm. that you can make someone thinner from that knowledge.
0: Right. And you know,
1: prevent someone else from getting fat.
0: Yeah, I'm curious about yeah. this. Uh, just based on your review of literature, I know there are lots of studies about obesity, how to lose weight, that sort of thing. Are there many studies that, that look at people who are doing it right? Uh, who are lean and and maintain leanness over a period of time and looking at what they're doing?
1: Well, there are, but the problem with that is, um, you know, it's like saying let's take a population of people who, well, let me rephrase this. You know, we know from the obesity and diabetes epidemics that there's some factor in the environment that triggers this. You know, you've got genes, which are, you know, you're, DNA, which is your genotype,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then how those genes manifest themselves in a particular environment, which is called the phenotype. So you start off with a set of genes that we can pretty much be confident hasn't changed in any significant manner in the past 40 years. Sure. And then you change the environment so that something in the environment now triggers these genes so you manifest you know, what you could call the obese-diabetic phenotype. So today, a third of the population is obese, it manifests in that obese phenotype 50 years ago, it was like one in eight people. Then you ask the question, what is it that triggers the genotype? What is it that, I mean, triggers the the, the genes so that they manifest, so that we manifest obesity instead of being lean? So the problem is if you're studying lean people, you're studying people who haven't Men who don't manifest the obese diabetes phenotype in this environment. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what can you learn from studying lean people? Other than that, whatever it is that's making these other people fat, <laughs> they don't have it. Yeah.
0: Well, one and thing it's that. Funny.
1: One, one of the problems. Let me think. One of the problems with how people think in this field is, if you're lean,
2: mm-hmm. it's
1: natural to assume that if other people just did what you did run marathons, not, you know, eat a lot of pie, um, (laughs) live in France, be 18, who knows, then they wouldn't be fat either. Right. (laughs) But the message of this research is that People, you know, there are people who are predisposed to be obese and people aren't. Sure. Yeah, you know, when I was growing up, I have, I have an older brother. My older brother was like when he was eight years old. You could see every vein on his arm and every, you know, muscle in his body. This guy did not accumulate body fat. Mm-hmm. And he grew up to be a, a distance runner and a rower, you know, an endurance athlete. Okay. I was shorter and chubbier and plump. And, you know, when I went through puberty was good to me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was always like four inches shorter than he was and 20 to 30 pounds heavier. And wow. I became a football player in college, a poor one, but I did it. You know, anatomy is destiny. He became an endurance runner. Okay. I could never run the way he could run. Even at my best, I could never do eight mi- more than eight miles when he could do, you know. To me, eight miles was a marathon. It took two weeks to recover <laughs> for him. Ten miles was like a, a walk around the block. Yeah. Um, we both ate as much as we could, and we both ate the same food, right, because we grew up, and in fact, it took us 18 minutes to go through dinner because we ate as fast as we could because if I didn't eat fast, he would get to more food before I could. <laughs> I've been there. You know, and my brother, when we were when I was at Harvard, he was doing a um, uh, junior fellowship there, and so he would come to my warm for Sunday breakfast, which is like a buffet breakfast at the cafeteria, and he would eat for hours. I mean, his line was, I never get stopped, I just get bored of eating after a while. And then yeah. he, would, he would make like six sandwiches, uh, peanut butter, jelly, and granola.
2: Oh, my gosh. And God. Whole
1: wheat bread. And he would carry them out in a napkin eating them as he left. And he literally, it just, you could eat as much food as humanly possible, and he didn't, accumulate like body fat. Yeah. And I did. So the question is, which one of us do you study if you want to know what causes obesity? Mm-hmm. Not that I ever became obese, although at points I've had a BMI over 30. Um, you know, so it's sort of... But it, the natural thing is to assume if you're lean. If everyone else did what I did, it's only, you know, then they would be lean, too. Yeah.
0: Just not
1: true. That's a cognitive um, error.
0: Right. Now, i Anecdotally, of the folks that I know who are lean or fitness models or, you know, in great shape, a lot of athletes, um, if there is a recurring theme that I've found, it's that they know something about carbs. And that thing that they know is that if you eat too many of them, you become fat or you put on fat. Um, so can we talk about that a little bit? Like when you talk about eating low carb, um, what, is, what does that mean numerically? Well,
1: oh, and again, that's going to be different for everyone. Yeah. So that's again this this question of you know in the world there's a probably a bell shaped curve of tolerance for the carbohydrates in the diet or some kind of carbon I mean, you know, maybe might have started out bell shaped at one time and now it's skewed towards intolerant, so you know if you're over obese or diabetic um metabolically disturbed is a phrase you see thrown around the the blogosphere these days, and it's a pretty good one, so you could you know and you you want to be healthy mm. Mm-hmm. You know, low-carb for those people may be virtually no carbs other than what you find in green leafy vegetables, yeah. which are so bound up with fiber, there's actually few digestible carbs in there, and they're very slow to digest. Um, but for somebody who's, you know, lean and um, has shown no signs of getting fatter as they get older then for that person, if they can tolerate the carbs, I'd still recommend that they avoid sugars. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the highly refined grains. But on the other hand, you know, you've got to enjoy your life as as much as maximize it. So if your body can tolerate it, um, then, you know, who cares if you live a year or so longer unless you care when that year comes around. Um, that's <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, you know, but one of the ways I get in trouble, is I'm seen as an extremist, somebody who doesn't want to... Um, you know who says that even fruits are bad? And I'm what I'm saying is, look, if you're obese or the type two diabetic or pre-diabetic, then then you know you're not doing yourself any favor by eating grains and 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 starches and fruits. Sure. Um, You know, I'll I'll buy that I could be wrong about the uh, sweet potatoes, but I doubt it. You know, again, the paleo blogosphere that loves sweet potatoes Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, because of the uh, catasms, I think, like Uh sweet potatoes. But I find that a bit cognitively dysfunctional as well.
0: Okay. So, yeah, one of the the terms that's thrown around is safe starches, which I'm sure you've come across. Um, What's your stance on, on that
1: then? Well, again, I think starches are safe if your body can tolerate them. Yeah. And the question is, how do you know? And how do the the the, the diet uh, the, the nutritional authorities who argue about this? If you need some really good randomized control experimental trials that will probably never be done. Sure. Because there's no nobody's going to make a lot of money studying sweet potatoes for. <laughs> Unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, I actually think when it comes down to us, we all pretty much agree.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, you know, I, I'd love to, it's a very easy study to do. I mean, you can imagine taking, you know, uh, 500 obese, overweight subjects and randomizing them into two groups, and one gets, uh, you know, all the food they want with no starches, and the other gets all the food they want with 400 calories of sweet potato every day. Mm-hmm. Then you'd have to run it out for about 20 years to see if, not just whether it affects weight, but heart disease, cancer. Um, So you'd probably need more than 500, you'd probably need need 20,000 people. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Really expensive. But do you see what I mean? It's sort of. Totally. um, If you're weigh 300 pounds and you weigh 200 pounds and you go on a diet that's completely devoid of safe starches and and sugars and you're losing weight and then you add the sweet potato a day back in and your weight loss stops then there's no such thing as a safe starch for you, at least at the moment now, mm-hmm. it gets complicated because you might lose 100 pounds get down to 200 pounds be relatively lean and healthy and maybe your body Metabolically adapts over time so that four or five years later you can now eat a sweet potato without mm-hmm. getting fatter. Yeah. Or maybe it gets even more sensitive and the sweet potato is going to cause more havoc five years from now than it does today. Right. I've certainly seen that. I think even with myself, I can stay lean. Uh, it, there are carbs, foods I could consume five years ago that I don't think I could consume today without putting on 10 pounds
0: really so yeah. let's let's talk about that a little bit. Where does that leave Gary? What does he eat from day to day and what, what specifically what foods are those that that you might not well, be able to I mean, tolerate? I'll tell
1: you, you know when I first did uh, ate this way, so I did it as an experiment. I was back around two thousand. I was writing this story for science on uh on dietary fat and mm-hmm. because I'm a freelance journalist, I would often report two or three stories simultaneously. So I was also doing a story for Discover on the mathematics of the stock market, and I was up at MIT interviewing a, a fellow who runs the laboratory of human engineering. Uh, laboratory of, well, let's just say it was an MIT economist. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so we were talking about good science and bad science. I told him about the dietary fat story, and he said, "Oh, if you're writing about dietary fat, you have to try the Atkins diet," you know. It's uh, high-fat, high-saturated fat diet. He said his, his collaborator at Wharton lost 200 pounds. His collaborator's father lost 200 pounds on this diet. Wow. And he's Asian-American, this MIT economist, and he said he lost 40 pounds basically giving up white rice.
2: Hmm. So
1: I was living in Venice, California at the time, now Santa Monica, right, just north. And I didn't have any kids, so I went back and I thought, okay, I'll do the second diet thing. So it's, you know, eggs, bacon, yeah, there was a, a chain of um, Argentine restaurants in the Los Angeles area called the Gaucho Grill where you can get meat relatively cheap so struggling writers can eat there. <laughs> and I'd go to the Gaucho Grill with my friends for lunch and they would get, you know, the skinless chicken breast with salad and I would get, they had this appetizer that was melted mozzarella cheese, I think, with pepperoni. Wow. And, you know, there's this film of oil on top, and this was my, you know, i joked that this was my health food, you know, and then <laughs> I'd have a steak um, with broccoli or something, and i wow. lost weight effortlessly. Um, so, and it's bizarre. I mean, I, I was a guy who worked out an hour a day, thinking I didn't like to diet, so I thought as long as I'm burning, you know, four or 500 calories a day and exercise, I could eat as much as I want, but I had gained a couple pounds a year. hmm Despite that, so I was up to around 230. I'm 6'2". I still looked like a linebacker. I looked like I'm in shape, but I was getting heavier every year. And then you Mm -hmm. do this diet, and it's just, boom, the weight goes away. It's bizarre. And I often say to the research, what's so fascinating, is it's like in science, you want to find the anomalous observation, the thing your theory can't explain. And this is what this economist was getting at. It's, It's like you know, you're conditioned to think that if you want to lose weight, you've got to work out like a madman and, and starve yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, we'd all done it. I'd been on diets where, you know, like I ate nothing but a thousand calories of sushi a day. And, and, yeah, you lose weight, but you think about food all the time. Yeah. And it's here not a I lifestyle. Was, you know, eating this ridiculously luxurious food
2: mm-hmm.
1: and losing weight effortlessly. So... That was then. I actually I got down to around 205. It's funny. My wife said I looked emaciated. And <laughs> I, like, I weighed 30 pounds more than anyone you know. Yeah. And you can actually <laughs> see on on when I, I um there's a YouTube clip of me and the Charlie Rose show with Mehmet is there and you know I see that and the collar of my shirt doesn't sit and my and I look to me I look emaciated. Yeah. And I was probably about 207 then.
0: Wow. What do you know? So
1: over these Oh, right now, probably about 220. Okay. So I very quickly kind of went back to about. So I'd been at 230. I kind of floated back up to 220. And then Mm -hmm. over the years, I moved back to New York. um, And one day, I weigh myself, and lo and behold, I'm like 240 pounds. Wow. Heavier than I've been, with the single exception of my senior year in college, when I was playing football, I was trying to weigh 240 so I refuse to believe it, but now I have a lot of young... I have two young kids, and when you have kids, you are always taking photos, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's a photo up on Cape Cod, and I'm in a bathing suit, and I'm bending over, and it's like really beginning to look like that 240 was the correct lake. Like, mm-hmm. where did this come from? I'm supposed to be a diagor, right? I, mean, <laughs> I hate the term, but I'm supposed to understand this. Stuff. Sure. So I start doing research, and one of the things... Um, Is that yeah, I'm a writer, I've always had a coffee addiction and even when I'm drinking even when every few years I manage to decaffeinate myself, sort of titrate down, so I'm drinking only decaf. But I still need that cup of decaf by my desk. So I'm thinking like, what is I always wonder why would I still need if it's only decaf, why do I crave it? And is it the dregs of the caffeine in there, like the one to two percent caffeine? Or so anyway, I thought maybe it's the cream. I put heavy cream in it, right? Because you can drink heavy cream. Yeah. I don't right. Eat enough. So I do a literature search, and lo and behold, dairy seems to overstimulate insulin secretion. The mm-hmm. carb content for some people. Not that these studies were done with heavy cream, but that was the conclusion. So I gave up. I basically switched to black coffee, which I thought would be horrible, and it's a tribute to a caffeine addiction that only took me three days before I was like a black coffee connoisseur. Hmm. And 15 pounds just went away. Wow. You know, just like the first time was I, and again, maybe it was the calories. I was probably getting 300 calories of cream a day, so you can argue it was the calories, but the question is, why did I want to replace them? And the weight literally just you know, six weeks later, I was back down to around 223, 224. That's I amazing. That right now I'm probably 220, 218, because I gave up, Yeah, you know, it just sort of floats around, but my waist stays at like 35, which is what it was in college. Yeah. Um, So I don't, I don't really, I don't weigh myself, I don't really care unless there's something obvious. But sure. again, so my body must have, at some point, it could tolerate that cream, right? Mm-hmm. Because I was... 25 pounds less at one point, or you know, with the cream and the diet. So, the question is and what you know, what happened over those years? And one thing I was thinking is you know, because you're drinking and nursing the coffee all day long with the cream, if it's stimulating just a little bit of insulin,
0: right. you're
1: basically living off the cream and never tapping your fat stores again. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so it
1: could be. It could be. Had I had it all, say, just in the morning, and then switched to black coffee, I could have been. Might have been fine. Yeah. So again, there's a lot of variables, variables involved. That,
0: <laughs> yeah. Even when there's one variable, there are a lot of variables involved. There are a lot
1: of variables. Yeah, it's a complex <laughs> system. But that I could be 15 to 20 pounds lighter without cream. Wow. Undeniable.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Well, we're just about out of time, Gary, but uh, why don't you tell the folks out there where they can find you and what you're working on now?
1: Okay, well, a couple things. Um, You know, and this is, at least I started a not-for-profit with Dr. Peter Atita, who's a San Diego-based physician, a healthcare consultant. Yeah, very cool. So, So the idea is, how do we get the research community to accept that they might have embraced the wrong paradigm? And there's some specific studies that we think could be done that have never been done that could be very compelling on this front. And so we thought we'd start a not-for-profit. And they start doing, you know, crowdsourcing over the Internet, nights and weekends. And a year ago, November, I heard from, I did an economics podcast and heard from a fellow afterwards who said he heard it. And I had mentioned some studies that I wanted to see funded, and he said he ran a foundation. And they don't do obesity research, but they were thinking of getting into it. So I Googled him, and he turned out to be a young hedge fund manager, a philanthropist who was worth a few billion dollars.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, to make a long story short, we've had some phone conversations. Peter went down to Houston to meet with these folks, and so we're now being supported by the Lauren John Arnold Foundation. This was John Arnold like have uh, um, cool. a, a remarkable philanthropic methodology which is basically to, to treat philanthropy like you would any investment where you try to maximize your, your return on investment so you find areas where you could you know put in a certain amount of money and get significant sustainable change out of it so they given a seat money open offices in San Diego and um, a commitment to wait for a few tens of millions of dollars to fund what at the moment is just three studies that together would be far and away the best, most rigorous nutrition studies ever done. And that we think could have some, you know, if I'm right, and I may not be because this is science, so they, you know, <laughs> that's, that's 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 sort of the... the thing you have to accept going in, that you they mm-hmm. Arnold could spend all this money and we could end up proving, demonstrating that I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, I don't think so. And I think, you know, anyway, the point is we still have to raise a few more tens of millions of dollars, because among other things, just as a 5013C, which is the kind of non-profit we are, we can't take all our money from one source.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the good news is we have this commitment from the Arnold's for just... A, a remarkable commitment from them to support research. We put together a consortium of some of the best obesity researchers in the country, and I think the smartest scientists to do the key study in all this, and we've designed that study. And these people have gotten involved in part. I mean, they accept that the hypothesis that I put forth in the books could be right. They don't think it is. Yeah. Almost to a man, they think that I'm wrong. <laughs> but they really appreciate the opportunity to do really good science Yeah. without the kind of constraints and financial and um, the, the sort of bureaucratic that come with trying to work through the National Institutes of Health. Um, but we still need to raise more money on top of it, so I'm doing a lot of fundraising and I'm kind of pitching the nutrition science initiatives on mm-hmm. the slide right now since org and uh, you know we think that if the if the country would spend on the nutrition obesity diabetes link this link between nutrition and chronic disease just the money they spend to develop one drug yeah nine hundred million dollars and you would solve all these controversies and if what I argue is right then you would be able to demonstrate that beyond the shadow of a down and we could work our way back to getting, you know, obesity levels back to where they were, say, 50 years ago.
0: Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, but, and how much would that save, you know?
1: <laughs> and that, that turn, that's where the Arnold philosophy comes. Yeah. You, know, you spend, you know, a billion dollars max and you, if it's right, so there's a catch, if it's right, but if sure. it's right, you, you could possibly save, you know, a hundred billion dollars a year and just in healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. The estimate for what obesity costs the healthcare system at the moment is $150 billion a year. Yeah, It's incredible. So you could save half of that. It's an amazing return on investment. So that's <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty good the ROI. kind of thing they're seeing when they're backing us. Yeah. Like I said, you still have this caveat that, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't I don't well, think so, but some very smart people think I am.
0: So. Yeah, worst case scenario, if you are, at least you, uh, you'll have that answer. At the end.
1: Yes, and I'll be selling shoes somewhere in the middle <laughs> my kids through college. Um, I have to prepare. for. I sold shoes in high school. I'm ready. Um, <laughs> anyway, it'll be interesting. I mean, the, the flip side is it's even, do you think, you know, you read about these studies when they come out in the journals, and, the, and you think this was a three-month study or this was a one-year study, I and mean, what you don't realize is that a three-month study could take three years to do. Mm-hmm. Because each subject zone, it's not like you en- enroll 40 subjects on April 1st, and they're done by, you know, July 1st. Right. Um, it's, you know, two are enrolled in April and three in June. And so, you know, and then by the time it takes to enroll 50 subjects in a three-month study and go through the three months, it's taken you two years. And right. you to analyze and write up the paper. Yeah. So, you know, we hope to have meaning. I, I fantasize. That we would have meaningful results by my 60th birthday, which would be um, 2000 April 2016.
0: All right, let's um, do it.
1: Yeah, but that doesn't mean the paper will be out by then. Yeah, the papers plural. Yeah, but it's fun. So that's, that's taking most of my time, and um, and then I'm working on a book on sugar and high corn syrup that I was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation with help from my publisher. And Lord knows when I'll
0: finish that, the profit is taken up most of my time. Sure. Well, the work you do is very important. And what you already have out there, good calories and bad calories, as well as why we get fat, I think I consider them some of the best books I've ever read uh, and best work I've ever read in the field of nutrition. So uh, anyone out there who hasn't read them already, go out and grab them. I, I highly recommend it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I I mean it, Gary. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're out of time, but um, folks out there, go check out Gary Taubes' work. And uh, thanks again for everything you do to contribute to the field, Gary. And you're welcome on the show anytime. Hey, well, thanks. This game is made fun, and I'd love to do it again. Awesome. Thanks, Gary. If you'd like to hear more from Gary Taubs, you can check out his website at garytaubs.com. And don't forget if you'd like to grab my ebook, audio, and video coaching system for fat loss, you can grab it for 60% off if you head on over to fatburningman.com and sign up for the mailing list there. Some great shows coming up with Michael Fishman, Mira and Jason Calton, Melissa Jewelwan. Craig Ballantyne and tons more coming up for you guys. So stay tuned and I'll be talking to you guys soon. Cheers.